Who is the most underrated actor of all time? It's Dolph Lundgren. Correct. Why? Well, because of his uh, spiky hair, yep. his ice-cold demeanor, and his big muscles. Absolutely. I must break you. My name is Sergeant Andrew Scott. Come on, guys, don't do this. If I don't get breakfast, I get real grumpy. I don't think you're likely grumpy. Hello, and welcome back to I Must Break This Podcast. This is the fan podcast celebrating the cinematic career of action legend Dolph Lundgren. I'm your host, Sean Malloy, and on today's special interview episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with screenwriter Chris Millis. But before we get to the conversation, I wanted to remind you all to please feel free to rate and review the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you go to subscribe. We always appreciate the reviews, especially those five-star reviews. Those always help. Also, please be sure to check out the Facebook page for the show, I Must Break This Podcast, here you can stay up to date on the show, the career of Mr. Dolph Lundgren, and other news regarding action cinema in general. So if you're not already following the page, please feel free to like it, share it, and continue being a fan and helping spread the word. Uh, lastly, if you'd like to get in contact with me with ideas, suggestions, or thoughts on the show in general, you can take a look at the official webpage for the show, which is imustbreakthispodcast.wordpress.com. Now, on to today's conversation. Uh, recently, I had the pleasure of speaking with writer, cartoonist, teacher, and public speaker, Chris Millis. Millis is the author of the quirky novella Small Apartments, which he also adapted into the feature film directed by Jonas Ackerland, including a star-studded cast with actors from just about every film genre, including James Caan, Billy Crystal, Johnny Knoxville, Rebel Wilson, and Dolph Lundgren, Small Apartments tells the story of Franklin Franklin, an eccentric recluse who must tangle with his oddball neighbors as he attempts to discard the body of the landlord who he has just killed. My name is Franklin. I haven't always lived here. Not so long ago, my life was very different. That was when I used to live with my brother, Bernard. Now, I live alone. Maybe I should leave this place. What do you think, Mr. Olivetti? Have you talked to Mr. Olivetti today? I killed him. He's lying dead on the floor. Wait till it gets dark, then make it look like a suicide. To whom it may concern. Suicide, huh? That's what the physical evidence wants to suggest. Your landlord died in a fire last night. Is he okay? No, he's dead. He's, uh, he's packing. Oh. He said he's moving to Sweden, Switzerland, and wherever they think a giant elephant tusk is a musical instrument. My proven methods, you vastly reduce your chance of a brain attack. Where is it? 
I'm in the middle of a 40-day cleanse. Ridding myself of all my herpes. Can I borrow 20 bucks? It'd be a lot easier sticking this fork in your throat. Whatever. Franklin, sanity is wasted on the sane. You only get one shot at this life. There are no do-overs. Time wasted is time lost. It doesn't matter if you live in a small apartment or some big mansion on a hill. It's all in your mind. Because happiness is a state of mind. Hey, you're a cute little guy. You want some? Come on, don't make me drink alone. In this conversation, Chris Millis and I chat about the creation of small apartments and its transition to the big screen. We also discuss his thoughts and reactions at the wild cast of stars who lined up to star in the film, especially Dolph Lundgren's unique casting. For anyone who's not aware, for small apartments, Dolph stepped out of the action genre for the first time in his career and took on a small supporting role as Dr. Sage Menix, a humorous self-help guru with a wild wardrobe. I'm clearly not doing the film justice, this is Dolph Lundgren as you've never seen him, and it needs to be seen to be believed. The film is a real trip, and Lundgren's casting is just one of the many perks. Chris Millis and I also discuss his work prior to writing and screenwriting, when he worked as a newspaper cartoonist, and his upcoming projects for the new year. Once again, it was another treat to be able to speak with yet another talent for the show. Uh, Millis was amazing to speak with. He was honest, kind, and very generous with his time. So, for your listening pleasure, is my conversation with Chris Millis on I Must Break, this podcast. Well, you know, I mean, you, you sent me your, uh, your, your resume, which was, uh, which, which was not only very impressive, but really fun to read. And, you know, just looking at it, I mean, you're an author, screenwriter, cartoonist, teacher, public speaker. I mean, were these all careers that you envisioned yourself dabbling in when you were younger? I don't think so. I, I don't, you know, um, it's, it's the, uh, you know, it's the paradox of all artists. I think we're, we're kind of like good enough and smart enough to do just about anything. So we wind up doing everything. <laughs> and I always, I always remember like, um, uh, Sparky Schultz, uh, Charles Schultz from peanuts. He said that he was a cartoonist because he wasn't good enough of uh, a drawer to be an artist. He wasn't good enough of a writer to be a writer. So somewhere in the middle, he landed as a cartoonist. And um, for me, like projecting what my career might be, um, it really, you know, after I studied art in undergraduate college and then later, much later after graduation, I went back to get my MFA in creative writing. And in the in-between, it was just trying out a lot of different things to make money. I'd been a, a newspaper reporter and a freelancer as an illustrator, a little bit as a writer, but but not really. Um, just kind of like comic pieces and what sometimes they call casuals. Um, and uh, the speaking part came in when... Um, I won a I won an international novel writing contest. That's how small apartments came to be. I won an international novel writing contest uh, that where you write a novel in three days. It's based in Canada and um, um, housed in uh, Anvil Press is the is the publisher. And it's been around since uh, the 70s. 
and still still going strong. And they get about five, six hundred entries from around the world every year. And I hadn't really written <clears throat> much before that. So I, I was kind of trucking along doing cartooning and freelance illustration and um, trying to find my way. Uh, and then when that got selected as the grand winner, which um, the first prize, the grand prize was publication, kind of threw me into like a existential crisis because <laughs> I was like, I thought I was a cartoonist or an illustrator or an artist or whatever that meant. Um, and now I guess I'm a writer, uh, but what does that mean? And I didn't know, and I didn't know how to make money at it for sure. Like most writers just starting out don't. So that's what sent me to grad school to sort of sort that out. And in grad school, I just became so enamored with storytelling structure and, um, fell in love with the study and analysis and the puzzling out of story and all the different ways you could tell stories. And this all started off with me saying where this public speaking came from. When I started to figure that out for myself and come up with my own sort of approaches to storytelling, I put together this really fun presentation, like a PowerPoint with lots of pictures from movies and all, all kinds of stories, kind of, you know, taking the Joseph Campbell concept, but exploding it into, um, you know, modern storytelling forms and uh, and movies and shows that people would be familiar with and kind of took that on the road and talked to uh, colleges and um, middle schools and, uh, you know, corporate retreats and stuff. And that took me all over the country for a while delivering these talks on story. And I really love that. That's something that I've missed, too the pandemic happening, just the getting out on the road and meeting people part. So who are some of your uh, inspirations growing up in terms of uh, writers and artists and filmmakers? I mean, I imagine there had to be, there had to be some who you uh, really looked up to and aspired to, to be like, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, the first ones were all cartoonists, right? So um, I love Bloom County, you know, Berkeley breathed Bloom County when I was growing up. Um, but I would learn to draw all the comic strips. I was, I was always a comic strips kid. I wasn't comic books kid. I think those are two different kind of lovers of the, the cartoon form. Um, and I do love graphic novels now, but when I was a kid, it was always like the Sunday paper and the comic strips. And so, yeah, Bloom County, um, like, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the the Beetle Bailey and the Far Side, um, and uh, of course Calvin and Hobbes were some of my favorites. I and then I got into editorial cartooning, and those became my heroes. Like Pat Oliphant um, was my favorite editorial cartoonist, and what was really cool is that as my career progressed, and um, I I got more gigs and became a uh, had a career as a freelancer, and then started working on a uh, syndicated cartoon, single panel feature called Close to Home with John McPherson. No, no, I actually, I, I have a few of those books, actually, those Close to Home books. It was hilarious. Oh, that's great. Yeah, John and I, um, it was very serendipitous. I was working as a, a art director and newspaper reporter at this paper that, like so many papers, uh, folded. And so I was out of a job, I came home to my hometown in New York and started as a sports writer at the local paper. And on that first night, went to the pub next door and just by happenstance bumped into John, <laughs> who uh, had a, had close to home for a few years at that point and uh, ostensibly became his assistant. 
And we're talking about like 1995, long time ago. And we've been great friends and worked together on many projects, including the strip since then. And uh, it was just a fun process of coming up with ideas, coming up with, uh, you know, funny drawings that we would try to caption. And we had a really good working relationship. So how did the idea of small apartments come about? I mean, because you, you talked about how um, you, you, you know, how the, pretty much if my understanding is correct, the genesis of the, of the story was, yeah, you wrote it in this, uh, this con, this contest, right? What was it? A, yeah. It was a three day novel contest, but yes. the, the story is just, I mean, so unique and wacky with such oddball characters. I have to ask, how did you come up with, not only the idea, but the uh, the main character, Franklin Franklin. <laughs> um, well, that's a great question. Uh, the the rule of the contest allowed you to have an outline, but you couldn't do any of the actual writing of the novel until the contest began on Labor Day weekend at midnight, right? First day of Labor Day weekend. And so I had used a week to kind of like construct this really intricate outline of a completely different novel. <laughs> and it, it came to almost midnight and um, uh, I was looking at the outline. And I said, I'm never going to finish this in three days. This is insane. What have I been thinking? And I, I really honestly wrote small apartments kind of off the top of my head and just wanted to start with a dude with a problem, you know, uh, and just keep writing myself into corners and um, didn't really have a structure for it until I got about midway through and I knew I didn't know how it was going to end. I just knew it had to have a really, you know, surprising, satisfying climax to, you know, guy that starts with the dead body of his landlord right at the beginning. And you don't know how it happened. You don't know why. And um, so I played with time a lot um, in the structure ultimately. But when I got around midway through, I said, all right, well, I need like these five or six things to happen in order to finish and just sort of jotted them down and then pushed through and uh, was able to finish it in three days. But where it all came from, I mean, I went to college in Buffalo. The novel is set in Buffalo. And those were neighborhoods on the west side I was well familiar with. And I felt like in the original novel, Buffalo was a character in the story. Um, For the film adaptation, we moved it to L.A. And that's how we were able to get such a great cast because of uh, the convenience of just coming and doing um, a few days shooting. And Franklin Franklin has got a little bit of Humbert Humbert. <laughs> Hard to deny that I had read Lolita uh, shortly before I began that project. And so, and he's kind of like spying on a teenage girl across the street and that kind of stuff. So I, I when I think about it now, there's shades of that sort of stuff in there. But I, got a, so, I just got a quirky sense of humor, Sean. I guess it's just yeah. kind of... Uh, <laughs> I like surprising myself. I like writing myself into corners. And then if I don't know how I'm going to get out of it, how's the reader supposed to know? Well, I mean, okay. So yeah, you, you write your very first novel and then, and then it gets optioned to be adapted into a film. And then you're tasked with writing the screenplay. I mean, that had to be, I imagine it had to be exciting, but also a little uh, frenetic at times. I mean, how did you, how did you respond to all that? Yeah, it was. It was both, uh, just as you describe it. Um, and I'd never written a screenplay before. In fact, I'd never seen a screenplay before. Uh, I didn't even know how they were formatted. So 
But I got lucky because right around the same time that I'd optioned the book and had the opportunity to write the screenplay is when I started grad school, grad school, um, getting my MFA at Goddard College in Vermont. And I had a couple of terrific mentors there, um, my thesis advisors, uh, who were kind of a yin and yang genius at structure and um, had worked on all these films and television shows. And another was kind of like me, kind of newspaper deadline oriented. And it was perfect for me because um, Neil Landau, who's one of them who now teaches at UCLA, um, he really opened my mind to that concept of structure. And I realized what I needed to do in order to properly adapt it. And so uh, I remember I took the screenplay for uh, Sideways with me <laughs> and went away for a week at a friend's uh, cabin that he let me use and just kind of studied what a screenplay looked like and, you know, scenes and all that kind of stuff. And, and the advantage of having written the book in three days was it was short, you know, it's like novella length. And so page count wise, word count wise, it had a pretty direct uh, translation to the screenplay form. I just had to solve some other issues, you know, stuff that you can do in novels that just don't fly in, in scripts. Well, and I mean, I imagine that this had to alleviate a ton of stress on your behalf and being able to write the screenplay as well, because so often you hear about this all the time when, when one author's work is adapted into a film, well, suddenly then you have another artist who is reshaping the original artist's vision, if you will, right? I mean, but you yeah. were able to essentially bring your baby this, you know, small little story from printed page all the way, you know, onto, onto the film. So, I mean, was that, that had to, like I said, that had to alleviate something and, uh, you know, bring you some kind of comfort, right? Oh yeah. I would have been curled in the corner of the bathroom floor <laughs> in the fetal position if I couldn't have uh, seen my vision all the way through and had to like hand it off. It, I, I felt extremely grateful, very lucky, but a lot of that had to do you know, it had to do with the fact that I, I did do a good job on the screenplay. I worked my butt off and, and really um, I did all the hard work I needed to do to get up to the, the level that that script needed to be at in order to be considered. Um, and on top of that, the director, Jonas Ockerland, was a fantastic partner to, to have done that project with. He, he really, I feel, he brought me in. Um, he trusted me. He uh, he taught me so much, and he sort of protected me too. Because, like you say, it's um, not often that the novelist gets to adapt their own work, and that can be really frustrating. <laughs> um, but uh, Jonas uh, has been um, a terrific friend and mentor and uh, professional colleague since before um, we even got to the point where small apartments got made. And he was just interested in attacking as the director. And so that was a huge advantage to me, too, that I that I think um, that I know I'm grateful for and that uh, not every screenwriter gets. Well, I mean, the, the film is noble, not just for its, you know, its, its wild story and its characters, but also for its uh, extremely eclectic casting. I mean, mm -hmm. if you, so if you look at the cast, I mean, the names that this film got are, are pretty amazing, I think. You have Billy Crystal, James Caan, Rebel Wilson, and of course, Dolph Lundgren, obviously. Um, <laughs> when, I, I'm curious, when you were writing the story, 
you had to have certain actors and people in mind for many of these characters, right? I I don't really, you know, it's I think later in my career I've started to think that way, but um I don't really think about who could possibly be. And in fact, I, I think I write in a way that kind of leaves it open to a very wide interpretation um as to who could be cast and, and by the people who are interested in the roles and the people who went after, I think is a pretty good example of just how uh, widely people can interpret the characters on the page. Um, but that great cast, you know, it, it, a lot of it has to do with Bonnie Timmerman, our casting director, and she was also a co-producer on the project. And she's just, she's a legend and she's fantastic. And um, she gave us a lot of love in devoting herself to getting a great cast. And people also came to the project again because of Jonas. He's a terrific director who they trusted could do it on a small budget. Um, and uh, it was like the perfect alchemy for getting a cast like that for a small project. Well, I think a lot of this also, you know, is a testament to, to be perfectly honest, to the quality of the script. I mean, because, I mean, <laughs> let, let's face it, to have actors ranging from James Caan to Johnny Knoxville and, and Dolph Lundgren, I mean, you have just about everybody from every genre imaginable. You know, you know what I mean? You have just about someone from, from every genre jumping on board this um, small little independent film. So, like I said, I, I think a lot of that goes to uh, the, uh, the, the quality of the script there. Well, I appreciate that, Sean. I, you know, when Billy came on to set the very first time, I went up to him and I said, Billy, you know, I had no expectation that somebody like you uh, would would do uh, a little movie like this. Because he, first of all, he hadn't done a movie in 10 years. The only thing he'd done in 10 years was his voice characterization for Monsters, Inc. And he'd never done an independent film. This was his first one. And he said to me, well, he goes, I read the script. And I said, I got to do it. I got to do it. He goes, you're right, good, good, you're funny. <laughs> and... I was like, wow, man, <laughs> uh, that's all I need to hear from Billy Crystal. Um, but I think what also goes to what you were saying was just how good everyone is in the film. I think sometimes when you get these ensemble casts, these eclectic ensemble casts, people kind of come in and do their shtick, and they don't really play the character as, as they fit into the story. And there was none of that. Everybody really loved their characters and performed them in a way that was cohesive to the story. And uh, I think that's what elevated it uh, and made it a really good film that I'm proud of. Well, the one, uh, the one casting that I really, really want to ask you about um, <laughs> is uh, Dolph Lundgren's casting. Mm -hmm. So I was curious how this one came about. I mean, I mean you, you already said that you didn't really have specific actors in mind, but I guess your initial reaction when you found out that uh, Ivan Drago was <laughs> he, he signed on for your film to play – Dr. Sage Menix. And can I just say real quick, I love his look in this film, how he has that dyed black slicked back hair. I mean, yeah. what was your, uh, what was your reaction to that casting? Um, I loved it. I, I really loved it. I, I love going against type, you know? Um, one thing I, I do, uh, I have learned over the years, which I, I had to learn only through experience. You can only learn it through experience is just how much, the actors bring to your story. You just, you just have no expectation. Um, and I don't know why that seemed like a foreign concept to me, probably because I just hadn't been lucky enough to have the production experience. But um, 
I I love now this idea of kind of like going against type and and giving the actor an opportunity to show you what they can really do. And the way that Dolph came to it was because he's good friends with Jonas. They're both Swedish, and um, there's there's like a little Swedish contingency there in the film. We've also got uh, Peter Stormare and uh, Angela Lingvall, and <laughs> there was a lot of Swedish crew, um, which was fantastic. But, yeah, they were good friends. And Jonas, I think, the pretty certain the idea initiated with him where he's kind of like, I think – I think um, Dolph would be perfect for this. Uh, and it's like once somebody says something that you haven't been thinking about and then it suddenly makes perfect sense, your your brain kind of forms all around it. And it's, it's like I can't wait to see this now. I, it's uh, it's just a genius concept. Well, I saw a uh, behind-the-scenes video um, regarding, <laughs> the, uh, regarding the film. And, yeah, when, when Dolph is interviewed, he is just – I mean, you can tell that he was having fun on set and he even makes the comment where he said, outside of Ivan Drago, this is the only film where he's never um, had to fire a gun. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true. Uh, he also said, like, did he say, like, uh, this is, I also didn't have any lines like, uh, where are the grenades and let's get to the chopper. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I loved it. I loved it. Well, I mean, the film is, you know, I mean, let's face it, the film is very dark, which, I mean, me personally, I've always gravitated toward humor that is on the darker end of the spectrum, we can say. I think it was Steve Martin who said uh, that, you know, comedy isn't pretty. Uh, do, do you find, as a writer and a cartoonist yourself, do you enjoy finding humor in the uh, darker corners of society? I do, yeah. It's definitely definitely what I'm drawn to as a reader, as you know, as an audience member for my own entertainment um, and in my projects. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just, uh, the way my brain works. And what I love to be able to do is like in the instance of small apartments specifically is take a, essentially an anti-hero and find a way to, um, invest the audience in that anti-hero and start rooting for that anti-hero. Um, because, Maybe you don't know their whole story. Maybe everything isn't as it seems on the surface. And I love the challenge of that as a storyteller. Um, and finding that sort of dark gallows humor <laughs> in everyday life, um, seemingly commonplace things, that's a lot of fun for me, too, as a writer. Well, and your follow-up novel, um, God in California, which mm -hmm. I, actually, I actually just picked up the other day um, via Amazon. So um, really looking forward to that one. Um, Thank you. But but did I read correctly that this one was also optioned for a film? Yeah. Yep. Um, that's had a very cool journey. That was actually my master's thesis for my graduate program. Um, that was my novel that I wrote um, for my MFA. And it was originally optioned by Lionsgate, and the option went over to Anonymous Content, and now we have uh, um, new uh, interest and investments in possibly making it next year. So there's some details I can't discuss right now because they're kind of just happening in the last few months. But uh, it has been under option continuously since I completed it about 13 years ago. And now it looks like it's finally going to get made, and that's exciting. 
Are you going to be transitioning this one to the screen as well by writing the screenplay? I did already write the screenplay. I wrote the screenplay, okay. um, yeah, for uh, Lionsgate originally when it went under option and um, haven't really done much to adjust it since then. Um, so that is my script. Would, would you say, I mean, does it, could you say it takes place within the same universe, if you will, as uh, it does. small apartments? Okay. Oh, no, no, that's a, no, I cut you off there. It does not take place in the same universe as Small Apartments. I do love that, though. I mean, when you were asking earlier about uh, writers that influenced me, I should have mentioned Kurt Vonnegut was a big influence when I was right at the perfect time to be reading Kurt Vonnegut. And also just the narrative uh, device of using cartoons inside of his his uh, prose fiction with like a huge light bulb going off above my head saying, I didn't know you could do this. I didn't know you were allowed to advance the narrative through imagery also. And um, to write with this kind of sardonic comic voice where everything is this black humor that's just bubbling under the surface of everything in the story. And the characters have unique names and on and on. So uh, I love that Vonnegut often writes throughout his whole Uvra, for lack of a better word, in that same universe, um, and sometimes even makes appearances in his own books. <laughs> but for me, um, I would not say that small apartments intentionally uh, would be in the same, uh, or I should say the other way around, God in California would intentionally be in the same universe, but that's not saying that it couldn't be or that I didn't unconsciously <laughs> do that. Maybe, maybe I'll discover later how they're all connected. Well, you're obviously quite busy, and you're a real jack-of-all-trades, you know, being a, a college professor in addition to, you know, <laughs> in addition to writing. Uh, what other, I mean, obviously you have a few uh, a few things in the works. Are you at liberty to talk about anything at the moment? Yeah, I mean, uh, I can, I can. I, I've got um, a project that I'm just starting right now that is uh, supposed to be uh, in pre-production pretty soon, which just sort of came out of, uh, came out of the blue from, um, a, uh, a producer that I have worked with in the past. And the way that we got together was a screenplay I wrote about the, uh, internet pirate Kim.com, um, a really fun, uh, bombastic, uh, big, epic tale, uh, biopic about um, this kind of larger-than-life persona. And uh, that got a lot of interest from, uh, got me my new representation. It got me uh, to meet with a lot of terrific folks um, and producers and so forth. And so that's a big project of mine that's uh, chugging along and um, is with my agency now. And we did go out at one point. It maybe about four four months ago or so, we went out to Sasha Baron Cohen, but unfortunately he passed on it. <laughs> uh, I think he would have been good. It's hard to cast because Kim is uh, he's he's not just larger than life in his appetite for the world, but he's a big guy. He's like six eight and three fifty plus maybe. So it's hard to find an actor without some measure of CGI could uh, portray him, but. That's a project I'm excited about and really hope um, that we're able to get into production sometime soon. We've got some, some real interest in that project. 
And then the other one I started to talk about is uh, much smaller, much smaller, another indie, maybe small apartment size indie that would be uh, contained within like a winter lodge in uh, northern Michigan. It's kind of sorting out the plot for that right now. Well, the last the last question I will ask, you know, before before I let you go, I'm just curious, you know, what advice do you have for aspiring writers and cartoonists and screenwriters and, you know, I, I, guess, I guess artists in general in those fields? Hmm. Well, the, the one bit of advice nobody wants to hear is that it takes a lot longer than you want it to. Uh, but in the meantime, you just got to keep working. You got to do the hard work of uh, continuing to write while you're waiting for things to happen um, and just move on to the other project, uh, you know, pursue all the different ideas you have and get them into some some state, you know, some form of uh, moving them forward narratively. Uh, I love the, you know, I kind of, Piggy tail off the Ray Bradbury advice, um, which I pass along to my students all the time, which is just to love it. Uh, if you don't love it, there's lots of other things you could be doing <laughs> other than writing. Writing can be really difficult. It's very challenging. It's uh, especially when you're doing something like we were just talking about, when you're you're, you're writing in that um, dark comedy anti-hero space. Uh, that's really challenging. Um, and there's a lot of other things you can be doing if you don't love it. If you feel like it's a, a drudgery just to come back to the page over and over, then switch it up. Work on something else. Um, find a different way in. Another bit of advice I give is if you're stuck, just jump to what you know. Jump someplace else in the story. It's like you're really excited because you kind of know how it ends. Then go write the ending. Why are you torturing yourself trying to get there? by being stuck in act one or something, jump to a part that gets you excited, something um, that really fuels that love you have for doing it in the first place. Because if you don't have that love that brings you back to it, you're not going to have the stamina to keep going. And uh, it's like, you got to be yourself. That's the last bit of advice is you got to write from your true self. Like you said, small apartments is weird. It is weird. It's got, it's got an odd, construction it's got some odd characters um it's got some very strange and unexpected plot twists in it but that's me and it's not like i was trying to follow some kind of formula on what gets movies made um but if i pretended to be somebody who i wasn't and i found success then that would be almost worse in a way because then i'd have to wake up every day and pretend to be something i'm not because <laughs> i found success by uh, being something other than myself. So work hard, be true to yourself, and uh, have patience. But while you're having patience, keep writing. Well, you know, it's funny, actually, that's uh, very similar advice that, uh, that I've given to a lot of my students as well, especially during this, uh, during this entire pandemic. That's the one thing I always try to end my class periods with is, you know, look, I know, I know that it's rough, you know, doing, doing these things remotely and via, via Zoom and whatnot, but you have to cut out time in the day for things that make you happy. And whether that is, I mean, you know, for me, obviously, it's podcasting or drawing or whatever it may be, um, carve out time for yourself within the day to do things that, that make you happy. I think that's the only way anybody can, you know, get through something like this and um, still stay still stay mentally sane, you know? I I agree. You got to you do it for yourself, you know? It's it's like you're 
you are you are doing it for yourself. You don't have to show your writing to anyone. It's not a um, it's not like somebody's looking over your shoulder. You 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 can take however long you want before you feel you have the confidence to share it. You're doing it for yourself um, first and foremost, and always because if, then if it becomes about the validation you get from other people or the money you make because you do it, then every little bit of that steals from the core love you should have for doing it for yourself because you just get such a kick out of it. <laughs> That's a great way to keep. And I'll, I'll give one bit of technical advice, too, because I would like to pass along technical advice um, for screenwriters, which is to start thinking about your story in sequences. Um, I know sometimes we talk about this as screenwriters, but um, I know there isn't a ton of instruction as to how to approach it. And I think we get locked into that kind of like save by the cat or, or save the cat uh, about thinking about beats. But what I try to say is that you can think about your beats as sequences so like the big beat in your story that you want to happen doesn't have to be some climactic scene or some moment where the beat happens it can be stretched across an arc of three or four scenes that accomplish the beat and it hides the better that way and it doesn't feel so formulaic well this has been an absolute pleasure an absolute treat um thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today and uh, I really appreciate you uh, lending some more insight into uh, not just your career but uh, the, this fun film and uh, best of luck to you and, and everything that uh, that is going on uh, not just pushing out the rest of 2020 but uh, 2021 and beyond. Well thanks so much Sean I really enjoyed it.